from the 51st Psalm, verses 1 through 4. According to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. This is the gut-wrenching picture of a man who realizes that he has utterly failed to be what God meant for him to be. And it poses a, a disturbing question. The question is, when a person utterly fails God, utterly fails to be what God meant for him to be, is it possible for that person to be restored? Is there a second chance? Is there some land of beginning again where all of our heartaches and all of our mistakes and all of our foolish pride can be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never picked up again? Is there possibility for a comeback? In 1956, a young German stood at the Olympic Games. He was right-handed and he raised his right hand and aimed his pistol at a bullseye target several feet down the range and he fired a hundred times a hundred bullseyes and won the gold medal. About 18 months later, a national hero in his country, his hand just above the wrist, right hand, was severed in an industrial accident. He was devastated. He wanted to go back to the Olympics and defend his gold medal. So he picked up a pistol with his left hand and he began to practice. Two years later, he stood at the Olympics and the same distance away was this target and he fired a hundred times, 99 bullseyes, and he won the gold medal. It was called the greatest comeback in the history of Olympics. Another way of asking it, if you've been dealt the knocked out blow, can you get up off the canvas and fight again? David the psalmist was perhaps had more potential and more problems than any other person in the history of man. God had given him such a potential of service and life and he absolutely blew it. He thought he was above the law. He thought that the laws that governed ordinary folks did not touch him. And it's a terribly, terribly dangerous thought that we're above the law and invincible. It's significant that the Bible says that the day he saw Bathsheba bathing on that rooftop, the armies of Israel were on the battlefield. 
And if you know anything about the history of Israel, you'll know that the kings of Israel always led their armies into battle. Obviously, he was letting somebody else do the tough work. He'd gotten lazy and indifferent. And he committed adultery. And to hide his terrible sin, he sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah on a suicide squad. And now he's dead and the sin is covered, he thought. Until Nathan the prophet came. You know the rest of the story. And Nathan told him this parable about a man who had all these flocks and herds, a rich man, and yet there was a man in the community had one little lamb. He loved it like a child. It rested on his breast. It ate at his table. But the rich man took that lamb from the poor man and offered it as a meal to a friend. And David was outraged. David was enraged. He said, that man is deserving of death. Then came the right cross that landed right on the target. Nathan put his finger in the face of David and said, you are that man. Now the question is, can he get up off the canvas and fight again? The question is, is there some land of beginning again where he can start over and be what God meant for him to be? The answer is a resounding yes. If you take the steps to the land of beginning again that are in this text. First, he focused on the character of his sin. He calls his sin three things. He calls it transgressions. The word means to revolt against God, to rebel. It's not like I, you know, I've slipped up and I've tripped up, you know, no big deal. It's like I have mutinied against the throne of God. Emil Brunner said you could define humanity in three words, man in revolt. He didn't say first, I failed in the standard I've set for my life, although he did. He didn't say first, I have betrayed the trust of a friend, although he did. What he did first was, he looked at the throne of God and this is what he called his sin. God, I know I have mutinied against the government of God. I have rebelled. A friend of mine was preaching a revival in a the little town, he, he was young, the preacher, he was staying at home of the pastor and his wife, they were young, they had a little kid. To say that kid was unruly is an understatement. The kid was a literal house ape. I mean, he was uncontrollable. And he said one morning they were sitting at breakfast. He was sitting on one side of the table, the other kid was sitting on the other side. Husband and wife were sitting on each end. They had some cereal sitting before him. The kid said, I don't want cereal. I want I want." pancakes. And the mother said, honey, eat your cereal. We don't have pancakes. He said he took that cereal bowl and just flipped it right up in the air. He said, cereal and milk went all over me. And the little boy said, I don't have to eat this cereal. You can't make me eat this cereal. He said, I went up to my room and sat down on my bed and I saw myself mirrored in that little boy. I must look like that to God. I don't have to. Keep your hands off my life. Transgression. 
He called his sin iniquity. The word means to be warped from the line, the straight line. And he's talking about a line that runs through everybody's life, a standard of morality and ethics, a standard of right and oughtness. He's not talking about perfection here. Some people, you know, are perfectionistic. Some of us are slobs. I mean, some of us are perfectionists by nature, some of us are not. Irma Bombeck says that the cupboard in her uh, house is lined, still lined with newspapers, and the headlines are, Malaria Stops Work on the Canal. Now that's getting, that's pretty bad. And one guy said, My wife is such a perfectionist that I got up one night to make myself a midnight snack, and when I got back to bed, my side of the bed was made up. I mean, now that's being a perfectionist. I'm not talking about being a perfectionist. I'm talking about this plumb line that, that Henry Blackaby talks about and he, as he uses the analogy from the book of Amos. And he says that God has dropped a plumb line down into everybody's life, a plumb line of holiness and oughtness and right. And said the psalmist, I've been warped from the line. I'm not on line. He called his sin, sin. It means missing the mark. It means to be deflected deflected from the goal. It's the manward aspect. He must have been thinking about that time as a boy when old Samuel came and anointed him out there in the pasture. And as that oil ran down from his head, down his weather-beaten face as a shepherd boy, cool and wet, He must have thought to himself, God has chosen me and I'm going to be everything God wants me to be. And now he's thinking to himself as he writes this, I never would have dreamed it would ever come to this. I don't know how it got this bad. I would have never dreamed that one day I would break the heart of God and the heart of my best friend. I would have never thought that it would ever come to this. He focused on the character of his sin. Second, he faced the consequences of his sin and he asked for four things. Number one, he called his sin, he he said his sin made him feel dirty, verse 2. And he prays for cleansing. He wants a bath. He wants to be washed. He felt dirty. He had seen the women along the riverbanks as they aggressively went after their laundry and the dirt that was in it, pounding it and thrashing it. And he said, I'm willing to accept any discipline. Beat me, tread upon me, pound me with a mallet, dash me against the stone, do anything that, you'll, that's, that will cleanse this spot from the fiber of my spirit. I want to be clean again. I'm dirty. Second, verse 8. His sin made him feel physically ill and he prayed for the joy of his life to return. Now, Psalm 32 is the the twin to Psalm 51. Look at uh, Psalm 32 and look at that with me. Look at it. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. 
when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my, through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. There are many believe, who believe that David that year got deathly ill. He had some kind of a flu-like illness that made his bones ache. He thought his bones were going to break. He ran a high fever. And this fever was such that it drained him and sapped him of all his energy. And he heard this roaring all day. Now as a shepherd boy out on the hillside, he, he would occasionally, as he listened to the moan of his sheep, he would occasionally be panic-stricken with the sudden roar of a lion. And he knew that lions were coming to attack his flock. And in that panic moment, he got ready to defend his flock. And what some believe David is saying is this, is that my sin has given me panic attacks. And my bones are going to break. And I'm so consumed with fever, it's like the daytime. Could it be possible that one's guilt or not dealing with guilt causes physical illness. Paul Turnier, the great Swiss psychiatrist, has a book called Whole People in a Broken World. He said most of the people who come to him are people who really don't have a physical problem. They have a psychosomatic problem which is a result of unresolved guilt. A man by the name of Norman Kovanish who teaches at UCLA, has done a lifetime of study of how people have these self-destructive, self-destructive characteristics because they can't deal with the guilt they carry. And one day, one, one year he decided he would just study these, all these one-car accidents on the Los Angeles freeway to see if there was any correlation between all these studies he'd made. And he found that one-fourth of these one-car accidents on the Los Angeles freeway were of people who had a self-destructive nature because of their guilt. Third, verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 51, he said, the consequence of my sin is, is that I'm cut off from God. I've lost my happiness. And he prays for that joy to come back. He prays, but no, no answers. He, he calls on God, but God is not there. He, he, he feels like he's all alone. It's the greatest tragedy a Christian will ever experience. Some of you know just what I'm talking about. And Mark sang about it, Lord, to my life, bring back the springtime. Take away the cold and dark of sin. Come to my heart, sweet Holy Spirit, make me warm and tender once again. Somebody who knew Beethoven tells about the time that Beethoven began to become deaf. In his museum, there are all these ear horns Beethoven had. They didn't have hearing aids like miracle ears, but they had these little ear horns, kind of like megaphones, and that's the way they tried to hear. He said, Beethoven had some the size of your little finger and some so big you could hardly reach around them. 
And the picture he has of Beethoven is this old man, this man who's lost his hearing with a hearing device stuck in his ear, straining to hear the sounds that were once there but gone. When you read Psalm 51, you see a man with his hands cupped up to his ears, straining for some sound of God. You see a man with his hand over his eyes, straining for some sight of God. He has known Him, He has heard Him, He has seen Him, but He's gone. The consequence of His sin. Back to verse 1. The consequence of His sin, He said, was that he realized he was getting what he deserved and he prayed for mercy. I love it when people say, I just want what I deserve. It's the last thing I want. I mean, what he did was, look at this, verse 1, he threw himself upon the mercy of God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitudes of your compassion, he is pouring himself out throwing himself upon the character and the mercy and the goodness of God. And he knows that if he's restored, it'll not be because of anything he can do. It'll be because God is merciful. He didn't even say, well, I'm good 75% of the time. When Todd Tidwell was a little boy, we lived in Tulia, Texas, and there was a guy out there, a dentist, who dressed up at Christmas time and played Santa Claus, Santa Claus helper. He was a fantastic guy. He was, he, he, he was the best Santa Claus. He'd just show up unannounced at houses around Christmas time, you know, and play Santa. One night the doorbell rang. I went to the door, and there he was. He came in, had his list, and he, he, he kind of unfolded his list, and he said, Gerald and Margaret, hmm. Oh, you've been good, he said. There have been a lot of people. I like it. He said, I love it. He said, you're, you're going to get a lot for Christmas. God's standing over here waiting. He said, Cindy Tidwell. Oh, Cindy, what a sweet child you are. You're going to really, Santa's going to be really good to you. Then there was this long, cruel <laughs> pause. And he said, Todd. And he kind of stroked his beard. And he said, hmm, see some bad marks. <laughs> and Todd's eyes got about that big. He, he said, do you have down on our help mother with the dishes last week? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. <laughs> got to count some things. Don't some things count? Not with a psalmist. I mean, it's five, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. And the only way anybody is ever made right with God is by God's mercy and grace. And the only way we're kept that way, the only way we keep being saved is by that same grace, and we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and upon His character. I know not what the future hath of marvel or, or surprise. Assured alone, I, that life and death, His mercy underlies. 
Yet in the maddening maze of things, tossed by storm and flood, to one fixed trust my spirit clings. I know that God is good. And if I get a second chance, if I get up off the canvas, if there is some land of beginning again, it'll be because God is merciful and good to me. I don't deserve it. He focused on the character of his sin. He faced the consequences of his sin. And he finalized the conditions for mercy. Now watch this quick and I'll be through. There are three conditions upon receiving the mercy of God. One is self-honesty. Verse 3. He said, my, my sin is ever before me. Emphasize the my. My sin is ever before me. Now what we say is, your sin is ever before me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm perfectly conscious and aware of your sin. Their sin is ever before me. Not the psalmist. It's my sin is ever before me. Now we've developed this kind of a, of a, of a uh, excuse-gathering rationale that says I am what I am I did what I did because of him or her I ought to be excused not the psalmist my sin is before me and every time I look I see the face of Uriah there is self-honesty now there are two enemies to self-honesty that is self-deception and self-justification. We have developed a marvelous way to deceive others until the place we've gotten to the place where we even believe it ourselves. A guy sitting on a park bench, another guy walks up and sits down on the other end. He looks down the end of the park bench, sees this guy real despondent and depressed. He's pretty despondent and depressed himself. So they start talking. The guy on this end of the bench says, I have a circus, my business is bad, I'm about to lose my business. What happens? Well, I lost my ape. My ape died. What's your problem? He said, well, I had this wonderful, I had this job. He said, I was doing fine. Walked in one day, boss came in, fired me. I'm out of a job. They got to talking. Boom. The guy said, why don't I dress up in an ape suit? And I'll come to your circus, and I'll act like an ape, and we'll, and, and, well, he said, we'll work to try it. And so he dressed up in an ape suit, and he got in the cage, and he was just doing so great. I mean, the guy was great. I mean, crowds were coming. They were watching the ape show, and they were making bucks, money, both of them. One day, he was doing his little ape routine. He turned around, there was a lion in the, in the cage with him. <laughs> so he did a little dance around there, getting away from the lion, and, and he was, the lion was you know, moving in on him, trying to trap him, and he was kind of fending him off, you know, and he gets more frightened and more frightened. The lion's getting more vicious, more ferocious. He's, he could tell the lion's claws are getting closer, teeth are getting more vicious, and finally, as the people, they thought it was a part of the act. They were cheering and laughing, and, but they heard something coming from the ape they had never heard before. This pitiful cry, help me, help me. And, and then they heard this mumble cry from the, from the lion, shut up stupid, you think you're the only one that's out of a job around here? Like a, a... 
The kids like that one. I, I, they, they had me listening all morning. I, they like. The moral of that story is, the moral of that story is, everything about us will one day be found out. You can't hide it long. In fact, the scripture says that one day, are you listening? Everything that you've ever done will be shouted from the mountaintop. Now that's a frightening thought. No way to deceive everybody. No way to deceive. No use for self-deception. Might as well be honest. No use, no place for self-justification. My sin is my sin, and I've got to face it and deal with it. Self-honesty. Second, confession. And he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And he's pouring out this confession. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, I feel the same way you feel about my sin. He's not listing what he's done wrong. That's easy. God knows that already. He's not doing that at all. He's saying to God, I feel the way you feel about my sin. I can't stand it any longer. No self-justification there, my friend. And I remember when old Saul didn't do what God told him to do and Samuel came and said, Saul, did you kill all those people, those Amaleks? Oh yeah, I did it all. Kill the cattle and the camels, mules and the sheep, you bet. What I, <laughs> well then why this bleeding of the sheep? And Saul began to justify, he lied first. He said, well I killed them all. Second thing he did was he began to rationalize. He said, well I kept a few so I could offer a great sacrifice to God. And then, then, then he got into this self-deception business. He said, well I did it, I was gonna kill them all, but the guys, the people, they got them. You know how we do? And then he said, I have sinned. You know what brought him to that place? Samuel said, God's sick and tired of all this fakery. Burn offerings and sacrifices God hates. Which leads me to the third condition. That's a submissive and humble spirit. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. But when you come to God and you go through this stuff of self-deception and self-justification and you make excuses and you think you can buy off God by bringing a sacrifice of coming to church or whatever you want to do, you're badly mistaken. He hates sacrifices, burnt offerings, and the blood of goats and rams. What he wants is a humble broken, submissive spirit. God, help me. This story, and I'm through. Marian Anderson, the black contralto who won and deserved the greatest honors of any soloist, perhaps, that's ever lived. She did not simply grow great. She grew great simply. She never lost her humble spirit, although she became this famous woman. And one night in a group of people, a reporter asked her, 
Miss Anderson, what was the greatest moment of your life? She could have answered many ways. For example, there was the night the conductor Toscanini announced, this voice comes but once a lifetime. Furthermore, in 1955, she became the first black to sing at the Metropolitan Opera Company in New York City. The next year, her autobiography, Oh My Lord, What a Morning, was published, became a bestseller. In 1958, she became a delegate to the United Nations. On many occasions, she received the medals and honors that nations could present the most illustrious and deserving heroes. Then there was that memorial time that she gave a private concert for the Roosevelts and the King and Queen of England. Her hometown, Philadelphia, gave her the Bach Award, which was the highest honor given to their citizens for the one who made the most contributions to the city. In 1963, she was given the coveted Presidential Medal of Freedom. And to top it all off, on one Easter Sunday, she stood at the base of Lincoln Memorial and sang a concert to 75,000 people, including most of the members of the Cabinet, the Supreme Court, and the Congress. But when she was asked, what was the most memorable moment, the greatest moment of your life, she shocked them with this answer. It was the day I walked in and told my mother, you won't have to take in washing anymore. Don't you ever forget where you came from. The psalmist said, you were dug from a pit. And if you don't forget where you came from, you will make it back to the land of beginning again. Let's pray. Our Father, these words rip into our pride and touch us at the point where we're most brutally jealous at the point where we have to say, Lord Jesus, I throw myself, I cast myself upon your mercy. Make me again. I'll not resist, I'll not rebel if you'll take your tender hands and mold my life, shape me, I've blown it. I've absolutely messed up. But I want you to start over with my life. I want you to begin again. And I want to be what I was created to be. Lord, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name. Look here. There might be someone here this morning 
who needs to give his life, her life, to Jesus Christ. It's the pits where you are. But I can promise you this, you give your heart to Jesus Christ. You cast yourself upon his grace. And the, and the great apostles said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Maybe you need to take the, the big step to begin to surrender the control of your life by placing your life under the discipline of a church. To follow Christ in a church membership. Or maybe you just need to come today because you've lost his voice and you've lost sight of him and you've gotten cold. And that sounds like you straining for some sense of God that was once there and is gone. You just need to rededicate yourself to him. Come back to him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.